Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Frank Cogliano. Dr. Cogliano is professor of American history at the University of Edinburgh, where he is Dean International for North America. Frank is also a member of the advisory board for the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello and spoke at the 2016 George Washington Symposium at Mount Vernon. He is the author of six books exploring American revolutionary history, the newest being Emperor of Liberty, Thomas Jefferson's Foreign Policy. He discusses his role as a Jefferson scholar, Jefferson's reputation as a founder, and the relationship between Jefferson, Washington, and Hamilton. And now, Drs. Cogliano and Bradburn. Hello, this is Doug Bradburn. We're back at the Mount Vernon Library. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Frank Cogliano, uh, who is a great historian and a great guy. And uh, Frank, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thanks a lot, Doug. It's always great to be here. <laughs> now, you are at the University of Edinburgh, which many people may or may not know. And you're always traveling around the world in the service of of that uh, great university. What are you doing? Well, I have one of the great titles. I mean, you've got a great title, Doug, but I've got a better title because <laughs> I am Dean for North America ah. uh, at the University of Edinburgh. And I didn't know North America had a well, dean. Well, yes, I'm here to visit my subjects. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a number of um, regional deans within the University of Edinburgh who, who kind of oversee international partnering, recruitment, um, alumni, and so on. We're the number one destination for U.S. students in the U.K. now. Mm. And we've got about 25,000 alumni in the U.S. and Canada, so I often visit them. Amazing. And yeah. you're very popular, I imagine. Uh, well, the university is not me. <laughs> <laughs> now, so did they give you that gig because you're American, or were you just, like, in the wrong place at the wrong time, or what? Ah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I think I was in the wrong place at the right time. I think being American helped, yeah. in part because I... We had deans for other regions, and I said, we don't have a dean for North America. Mm. Uh, and, and you and spoke the, up at the wrong well, time. Exactly. <laughs> you, you've been in academic life. Um, yeah. Yeah. You make noise, and yes. they, they, they say, okay, solve yeah. the problem. That's right. So, and that's so you I volunteered. Yeah, that was I great. Uh, now, you're from Boston originally, in Massachusetts. Um, yep, yep, and your accent now is completely screwed up because you've been living in Scotland for how long have you been there? <laughs> you're going right to the heart of all my anxieties, Doug. Um, <laughs> I well, it's not like we're recording you. <laughs> no, <anything>. it's fine. <laughs> I went to Britain for a year in 1992. And for all you graduate students out there, take the opportunities when they arise. My <laughs> PhD advisor uh, was Alan Taylor, who remains a close friend. Mm. And Alan's advice to me back then in 1992 was it's easy, easier to get a job if you have a job. Mm. And so there was a one-year visiting lectureship at a small college in Southampton in England that I knew nothing about. Uh, that I was offered and I took. And one year in Southampton turned into five, and then in 1997 I got the job in Edinburgh and uh, I've been there ever since. Wow. So you're a real expat. Accidentally, yes, mm -hmm. I suppose I mm -hmm. am. Mm -hmm. Although right. I have not become 
adult citizen. Uh, absolutely, it's Jefferson would not wouldn't allow it anyway. It's a retrograde step for a citizen of a republic to become a subject of a monarch. I love the way you think. <laughs> love it or leave it is what I always say. Uh, if you're not gonna you're not gonna be a citizen, then get out. Okay, so <laughs> okay. so you still vote? You still vote? I do. Uh, and uh, and uh, we have we're we're in the midst of a really exciting election cycle right now. I've heard. Which in in Europe must be a, a fascinating a conversation, but also sort of a terrifying uh, welling up. Yeah, there's a lot of anxiety. There's both interest and anxiety about the current election. I will say, however, um, having um, been in Britain for the Brexit vote, which has a direct impact on my life, um, yeah. I think people there are a little bit... A little more patient with yes, our democracy, with, with our, our crazy democracy. democracy. Having, having had some yeah. turbulence in their own democracy. It's so nice not to be able, you know, being judged by some snooty Brit and being able to say, you know, Brexit, really? Exactly. So, <laughs> so the fact that a significant proportion of my income disappeared overnight is, is, is offset by the fact that I have this Trump card to play. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Wow. Well, now, so well, you and I are both historians of the original Brexit, the American, uh, the American Revolution, uh, the AMSIC. AMSIC, I, I, I don't know what it would be called. but um, You're on fire today, Doug. Yeah. Uh, it's been an exciting time here at Mount Vernon. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to find on this, this CV bio I have of yours, which looks like it was written by you, because it starts out with, my research is mainly concerned with the political, cultural, and diplomatic history of revolutionary early National America. What was your first book? My first book, um, which is a highly sought-after collector's item, <laughs> uh, was about anti-Catholicism in the American No Revolution. king, no popery. No king, no popery. Ah, okay, fantastic. Uh, what a great subject. Yeah, it was, yeah. I really enjoyed that. You know, Steve Innes was uh, his. He was working on a book on the um, on the religious aspects of the American Revolution, and particularly in, in Massachusetts uh, when he died. Oh, unfortunately, right. I don't know if you you saw him give any talks on that. Uh, I did once yeah. or twice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, great loss. Because he was comparing forty, he was basically saying that forty one is the same as seventy five in Boston or something like that. He was aggressive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but yeah. I think it was a kind of, well, yeah. to use the, the, the jargon of the, the profession, a kind of habit of mind, certainly. Mm. Um, and, and I think anti-Catholicism and anti-Popish rhetoric yeah. runs through the run-up to the revolution, certainly in New England, but also beyond. Does it disappear? Is it, is it the very beginning, and then it sort of, once the French comes in, people don't know what to do with themselves? And yeah, I mean, that's, the, yeah. The, the French alliance greatly complicates things. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so they, they begin by saying, some of them make this transition, and there's, there's a Boston minister you may or may not have heard of named Samuel Cooper, and mm -hmm. Cooper's great because he's, he's a Whig. Um, he takes his sermons, and it's not that academics ever recycle their material. So we would never do this. <laughs> yeah. He takes his sermons from the French and Indian War, Love and he replaces French with British in them. <laughs> and so some make the transition yeah. by just saying the seat of Popish tyranny is now London. Um, it's, it's, well, terribly, it's a difficult thing with revelations, you know. It's just uh, times change, and all of a sudden uh, I misinterpreted the seventh seal, you know. That's right. And so <laughs> the French alliance really undermines a lot of this anti-Catholicism in New England. That's the story. I it's still an understudied aspect of the revolution, though, I think. I mean, the mobilization of people around religious ideologies and passions uh, is an important part of it, the story. It is, and we're not comfortable necessarily, although perhaps we're becoming more so, with the fact that the sentiments 
used to mobilize people are sometimes unsavory. Yeah. I mean, Rob Parkinson's book is all about that. Too. Mm-hmm. His yeah. book is all about that to a certain extent. Well, he's comfortable making that argument, absolutely. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, you know, anti- religious yeah. prejudice and certainly bigotry played a part in New England. That was the story, the, the story I told. And so yeah. it's a story of liberalization, if you will, in the sense that they eventually, as a result of the revolution, give this up to a large extent. Really? Yeah. Is that what you but think? It ta- well, it it takes a while. It, ta- it, it changes, while. I guess. It, changes, it must yeah. turn into some other sort of... And there are all kinds, you well know, all kinds of things going on in the history of American Christianity in that period yeah. um, that, that help explain this as well. So it's not monocausal, but we see this correlation, I think. So how did you transition then into the preeminent Jefferson scholar working today who's not retired? It's <laughs> a very kind way of putting it, but uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, Doug. Um, it was an accident. No, really? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was, uh, and this is where serendipity plays a role, I guess. Mm. I uh, it's nearly twenty years ago now. I was in Edinburgh. I was working. I was approached by a publisher, a small publisher, British publisher, mm. which had a series of books that looked at people's historical. Uh, a series of historical figures and looked at their reputations mm. and the history of their reputations. Right. And um, I was actually casting about for something I could do relatively quickly. I know the thought. But, <laughs> but also something that would that I could do more or less from Britain yeah. because I had a young family at the time and the prospect of going away for six months and my wife was training as a yeah. as a doctor and, and so on in, in, in the British system. The it just wasn't um, practical for me to say I'm going away for six or nine months to do research. It's a very common tale for people who end up working on the founders is the is the inability to travel to do research and the accessibility of the papers. That's right, and they're more accessible now than they were then. But they, so I thought, yeah. oh, I'll write a small book on Jefferson's reputation. Th- that <laughs> project evolved into something different that I published with the University of Virginia Press later, uh, and then once I started. This is how I got That's Thomas Jefferson, that. Reputation and Legacy, That's 2006. Right. That's right. That updates uh, Merrill Peterson or takes him to the present? It takes Jefferson in the American mind the, from yeah. 1960, whenever he wrote it, 65? Uh, yeah, it takes, right. I mean, Peterson's book is, is just fabulous, but it takes, um, it's both a prequel and a sequel in oh. the sense that mm. it looks at Jefferson's attempts in his own time mm. to influence his reputation. And then it kind of casts forward, because Peterson ends with the dedication of the Jefferson Memorial in 1943, mm. uh, and it w- takes it forward from 1943. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hesitate to bracket myself with Peterson, because Peterson's one of the great scholars. Um, well, he's passed Jefferson, away now, so we, yes, can, we yes. can do that. He's I not did, gonna one of away. my thrills was meeting him while writing that book, though. I mean, yeah. I just met him in passing once at an event, and he was very, very kind. Um, I met him at the uh, launch of the re- first volume of the retirement papers at UVA. Yeah, I were you there? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that? that's right. I think he fell asleep in the middle of Gordon Wood's talk. Can I say that? I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. I guess. I mean, you can say it's that. Not <laughs> wrong, it's not wrong to fall asleep. I mean, uh, but he was a gentlemanly sort yeah, of guy, absolutely, indeed. and a great scholar. Um, what's the takeaway from uh, Jefferson's reputation? Look, I mean, so. As someone who's in the field and been around Jefferson, I'm a UVA grad, undergrad. I mean, Jefferson, uh, you know, he he, uh, he 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 comes and goes in these periods where people love him and they love to hate him, uh, but he's not going away. He's definitely not going away. Um, that is the takeaway, I suppose. And he also was very very bad at attempting to control his own legacy because uh. none of us can do that. But he was particularly. Um, uh, 
bad attitude. I love his political NS, except for the name. Yes, because it's very difficult to pronounce. To <laughs> yeah, I, so I did it wrong, yeah, probably. No, 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 what do you call it? It's the Latin. Anus, yeah, yeah, I mean, the Annus of Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say it too quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gotta, yeah, yeah. But it's so I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm very interested in Washington now, and so I've been rereading the Annus, which I'd read, you know, in, in some of my own work, and uh, you know, and reading it in light of what Jefferson points out in the beginning of it, in which he's he's putting it together in some for some in some purpose at least to counteract the effect of Marshall's life of Washington. Right? That's right. And uh, and it's fascinating because I you know I think that I don't I don't think Jefferson's making anything up in the sense that you know those little anecdotes and little stories seem to be things that he's I mean, he changes, I guess, some of them later, but he's writing them like the day these things happen. You know, I just got out of a meeting with, you know, Beckwith and or somebody like that, and he was saying that Hamilton said this, and yeah, it's it's really great. The, oh, they're brilliant, and yeah. they're contemporaneous. They are contemporaneous. So yeah. They're they're his table. They're, they're his table scraps. As yeah. He calls them. Yeah. Um, and, and I I think they're wonderful and they're plausible. Mm. Yeah. But like anybody's account, of course, you, yeah. you know, you've got to it's you've from his point of view. perspective yeah. and, and everything else. Um, yeah. But he's seeking to counteract Marshall. He's seeking to counteract during. I mean, the, a main theme in the Annas, of, of course, um, uh, is he's seeking to undermine and counteract Hamilton unsuccessfully because mm. he doesn't. Mm. <laughs> Hamilton, Washington has more faith in Hamilton than he does in Jefferson. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're wonderful, absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, and so uh, Emperor of Liberty, the latest book. You yep. spoke here on it. I did. I was unfortunately not uh, able to be here at the time, but I think I left you a question. Yeah, a video a version of myself you asking you <laughs> yes, the yes, first you, question. Your presence <laughs> is always here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really a great book because oh, it re- it looks at uh, Jefferson uh, as a political leader, as a presidential leader, as a strong presidential leader. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a study of his foreign policy. It's it's a little bit, it, it, I think it's not a little bit, it's probably a lot revisionist in that it presents mm. him as a fairly decisive leader as president. The argument of the book is that he learns from, you'll know, there's a kind of stereotype about Jefferson as a sort of um, feckless, slightly incompetent idealist. Mm. You know, and he was called yeah, right. 40 years ago a halfway pacifist. and The, yeah. the, 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 the whirling chair stuff. Exactly. Too, yeah. All that sort of stuff. Yeah, pinning and, butterflies when he should be focusing. Right. <laughs> and my argument in the book is he actually learns a, a couple of hard lessons during mm. his tenure as governor of Virginia, mm. which is pretty disastrous. Mm. The, the British overrun the state, invade the state several times, and they overrun it. And although he doesn't flee, he doesn't quite stand and fight either. It's, mm. not, it's not the high point of his, of his life, to be sure. And he's yeah. embarrassed about it till the day he dies. Um, but the lesson he learns from that is to become much more decisive um, in a crisis and as a leader, and that that decisiveness manifests itself during his presidency. Well, and so he recognizes, he, he, he's aware of the relative weakness of the new United States. There's no mm. question about that. That lesson is brought home to him when he's in, at Versailles. Yeah, he'd been in Europe. We're the lowest he, of the yeah. diplomatic tribe. Uh, yeah. But he recognizes also that the United States needs to, that he as, a, as the leader of the United States during his presidency, has to maximize its um, mm. opportunities and seeks to do so. So he's he's fascinating, I think, because he's associated in our minds with you know rights and uh, and democracy and and um, but he's clearly a, a strong voice in the 1780s for the strengthening of executive power. When he, you know, in his notes in the state of Virginia, when he complains about 
you know, 170 tyrants are just as bad as one. So this movement away in the early burst of, the, of independence of these, you know, strong legislators because they'll be representative governments, therefore they'll be better, but really moving more towards the checks and balance and the stronger executive that, uh, that we're going to see in the presidency. That's right. And although he'll oppose executive power when it's wielded by others, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. more comfortable with, with, with well, he trusts himself. himself. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, yeah. but the lesson, um, yeah, I mean, the stereotype of Jefferson is completely opposed to, to executive power. Yeah. Goes back to the 1770s, mm. you know, and then the, the flush yeah. of the revolution. But he learns a hard lesson during his governorship. You know, one of yeah. the things he recognizes, look, he has to act without reference to his council because the council have all fled. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. thinks, well, if I, if I actually obeyed the letter of the law, yeah. you know. The, the, Wasn't the, he not even governor at some point? Like he, well, his governorship he stops being ended, governor yeah, in, in the right. middle of some crisis? At the very end, yeah. uh, his term as governor ends just as the British are overrunning yeah. uh, the state again. Um, but he recognizes that following the letter of the law um, mm. at the expense of public safety yeah. is a mistake. Yeah. Now, he doesn't think he can act as an autocrat, uh, so he recognizes right. that it's necessary to get ex post facto approval sometimes mm. for action, but that in a crisis an executive has to act. Is the embargo a proclamation? Is it, a, is it an executive order? Is it, is it a congressional act? It's a congressional act, um, and of course he needs the enforcement legislation adopted as well. So there are a series of enforcement acts that are adopted afterwards to, mm -hmm. to um, uh, enforce the embargo and stop smuggling and things mm -hmm. like that. Now, the embargo is usually held up as a great failure, and it is. Um, my interpretation of it, however, is slightly different, I think, mm -hmm. insofar as I think that he recognized in the wake of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair of 1807, in the summer of 1807, that and the public's clamoring for war, yeah. And he's resisting that because he recognizes the United States is in no position to wage war with Britain. But the embargo is intended to both apply economic pressure to Britain to hopefully mm -hmm. seek mm -hmm. redress of various grievances outstanding between Britain and the United States. And he's got some faith in that. Remember, this is a guy who came of age yeah. during the boycotts in the 1760s, and people yeah. believe that that stuff worked, right. Uh, right? But I also think it's a measure preparatory to war mm. because. One of the consequences of the embargo is American ships will have to return home. Mm. He's not eager to declare war on Britain while there are yeah. hundreds of American ships scattered around the globe that will be gobbled up by the Royal Navy and yeah. British privateers. Yeah. Uh, and so it's also a measure I think he believes, not unlike, although he would be rolling over in his grave to hear me say this, <laughs> not unlike the Alien and Sedition Acts, which yeah. themselves were also legislation that many pe people yeah. believe was preparatory to war. Yeah. A war right. that never came. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, yeah. and I think the Embargo Act is it should be seen in that context as well. Mm -hmm. Rather than it, it's usually held up as you know, his misguided idealism and misunderstanding of the way the world works. I think actually the, the Embargo reflects he, he knows exactly America's place in the pecking order. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, the Embargo is, is a move to keep America out of war. Um, and it's a move to, to it, in, I think, in the ways that you mentioned. I mean, it fails in the sense that, you know, it, it's not popular and it's, you know, there's some smuggling and things like that, but that's not really the point, right? Yeah, he's got a bad <laughs> He's not trying to create a popular, you know, no, plan. No, he's resisted. <laughs> yeah. The popular thing to have done he's, in yeah, 1807 would have been to declare war. That's right. Yeah. If he asked Congress for a declaration of war, he would have got it. Yeah. But he believes the war would have been a disaster. Mm. So, 
again, there's some interesting parallels with the Adams presidency in that regard. I so it's so funny in Jefferson's retirement when he's writing about you know years of embargoes and war you know have destroyed my financial situation. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, they have embargoes. Yeah. yeah, not to mention his spending, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's interesting. So. Uh, now you so the book did really well, and, uh, and you're also very involved in the field. Um, but but you're moving, I believe, in somewhere deep in recesses of my mind. I believe you're moving to do a study of Washington and Jefferson together. Is that true? Yes, it can is. Can you confirm or deny? I it? can confirm it. I yeah. will not deny it. I am. That's exciting. Uh, I am working on that now, not as much as I'd like. Mm. Although I understand there's a fellowship program here at Mount Vernon. Um, <laughs> you should apply, absolutely. Um, it's, it's definitely Washington-centric. Um, so. And amazingly, although obviously people have written about Jefferson and Washington, there is no book-length study of that relationship. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to talk about it a little at the symposium this weekend, as yeah. you know. Um, and I think it's a more complicated relationship than people think. He's yeah. usually seen, uh, they're usually seen as being, and, and we have... Martha Washington's comment about the worst day of her life was the visit by Jefferson in January of 1801 to, to Mount Vernon. I mean, you've got the perfect framing mechanism of the book with that. And That's right. I'm That's sure right. you start with yeah, that. Yeah, and must. it's wonderful. <laughs> um, but I think, and I understand why she says that, but uh, I think their relationship is more complicated than that. I think mm. um, well, it Jefferson is, yeah. greatly admired Washington, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as most Virginians did. Mm -hmm. um, at least white Virginians. Yeah. Um, and, and, well, a lot and, of black Virginians, yeah. too. Ultimately, uh, I think he he greatly admired um, Washington. I think they did work together for a time. I think Washington respected Jefferson and respected mm -hmm. his intelligence and mm -hmm. ability. And you know, he didn't make him Secretary of State for nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The right. falling out will come because the big difference is between Washington and Hamilton. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Jefferson and Hamilton. Excuse me. And of course, Washington is more inclined towards Hamilton than he is towards Jefferson, and <coughs> Hamilton's view of the world than he is towards Jefferson's. But in many respects. The falling out is relatively late. Yeah. I want to go back. I think you're right. One of the things I've been doing, which yeah. is really fascinating, and this is what historians ought to do, yeah. I set aside the secondary literature. Frankly, uh, yeah. it's not. Well, there's not much useful. No, there's not much yeah. on it. Yeah. And, uh, well, there's a recent book, uh, yeah. Fleming, I guess. Yeah, that's right. Jefferson and Hamilton. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I'm reading their correspondence, and I'm reading their correspondence in order. Yeah. And what comes across well. is not. And, and, and much of the. Um, discord between them happens at the very end of Washington's life and I think Jefferson regrets we're about to be an us he, he regrets that he was never able to put that right yeah. and in the one of the themes of the Anas is him trying to say in the period as he approaches his own death look I was actually on the right side of Washington Washington got me yeah. and, and you know he listened to me um, and of course Washington can't answer at that point because he's been dead for nearly 20 years uh, but I think it's a complicated relationship I think it's more complicated than people suppose no, I, I think it's a brilliant idea for a book, and uh, and and precisely because we have such great collections of their letters, you can you can walk your way through it. That's right. I mean, I I've been doing some recent reading in uh, in this period in the fall of 1792, and and also in the Annas, but also in in their their letters. And uh, I mean, this is the period where you write Washington is writing these great letters to Hamilton and Jefferson, in which he's saying, you know, it, because there's no perfect test to reason we have to allow for differences of opinion and mutual forbearances and charity for the you know the different ideas of others and he's trying to get them to stop thinking yeah. the worst of each other basically um in that period so this before the really radical part of the french revolution is is taking off I and mean, the king's arrested at this time but i don't think news of his death has, come, right. has come yet um 
Washington is struggling with a challenge of the British in the, you know, in, in the Native Americans in the Ohio Valley. He's struggling with the Spanish in Florida. And he's, uh, and, and, and Jefferson believes that Washington wants to make a move to try to get the French Republic to help them deal with the, you know, with Britain and Spain. Uh, and Jefferson and the NS is saying, this is what I told him to do all along. And, you know, he's finally coming to see my, my light. And it's an interesting period, I think, because uh, it's clear that, that Washington is working with Jefferson at that moment. Absolutely. And they've got a long, lot of common interests. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, during the slightly earlier, during the Nootka Sound crisis, yeah. right after Washington's presidency begins, mm. when there's a war threat between Spain and Britain. Yeah. Jefferson is working with Washington and Washington's approval mm. basically to shake down Spain saying, you know what, mm. the British are going to come for, for New Orleans and the Floridas. It'd be much better if you just gave them to us. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. then they won't be tempted like, to attack you. You can't get it if you don't ask. <laughs> right, right. And, and he's pursuing a quite yeah. aggressive foreign policy, yeah. again, which we yeah. don't always associate with Jefferson. Yeah. And similarly, he says... Or, the wa or with Washington, right, for that matter. Right. Yeah. But they're yeah. willing to kind of exploit the opportunities yeah. that are presented to them. But what's interesting about that period, and I, I have done some work on this, they're really working closely together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even mm -hmm. the Citizen Genet crisis. Right. Uh, you know, Jefferson, sure, he's more sympathetic to, to revolutionary France than Hamilton is, and ultimately than Washington will be. But again, he wants to kick Genet out. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> he's got no time for him in the end. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, he's not making Jefferson look particularly good in the no, public eye either. No, 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 yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. But, but what's interesting is again, where because we, we know there's a breach coming. I think we tend to look back and see it yeah. when it wasn't there. Yeah. Well, the well, I, I do think so. The uh, so those that period is interesting to me because there, there's all these conversations that they have Jefferson and Washington about retirement. You know, yeah. Washington clearly wants to quit after one term and is trying to figure out how to get out. Jefferson's telling him he wants to retire. They're both like competing to say how much they want to go under their vine and fig tree yeah. and float down, you know, and, and uh, pursue their rural amusements and that sort of thing. Um, I, now, this is a crazy theory, Frank, but I'm, I'm increasingly of the mind that I think that Washington is thinking that Jefferson is the successor to him. If he can, if he can convince him after one term that, uh, you know, allow me to retire. And he's trying to convince Jefferson not to retire because I think he sees Jefferson as the next president, more so than Hamilton. Um, and this is, a, you know, this is a year after the bank, but, uh, you know, and I think it's there. I mean, I'm feeling like it's there because, well, and if you look at, you know, the early history, of course, who was the next president? It was always the Secretary of State. He clearly sees that as a more important office than, than any of the others as well. And, uh, and it's the Genet crisis which ends that because yeah. he allows Jefferson to retire, basically. That's and, right. And he's going to remain. And that means Jefferson's not going to be his successor in line like that, in his mind. That's right. That's So that's, that's a really, theory. That's I'm, a very yeah. interesting theory, Doug. I mean, yeah. I, 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 well, think I, about it. Yeah, yeah, I will think about that. I don't know enough. I mean, I don't know if it was clear in Washington's mind, and maybe I'm projecting there, but I, and he's trying to get out. He's, try, you know, he's trying to get out. He must have in mind who's going to be next. You know, and, and the person that would have had the reputation and stature would have been Jefferson, not, you know, certainly not Adams at that point, and, uh, and, uh, and Hamilton. He knew Hamilton was disliked. I mean, that wasn't going to work. And he was a Virginian. I mean, like you said, they had yeah, all these shared interests. I mean, I do think the Virginia connection is really important to understanding yeah. them. And I think yeah. that relationship has been yeah. undervalued. I mean, we, we get, and I totally uh, agree with, the military connection, the army connection between Hamilton yeah. and Washington, and then yeah. Hamilton is a kind of yeah. uh, 
so, yeah, son yeah. to him. But but I think the Virginia connection is really really important to understand. So to, these two. let me uh, to put a finer point on what I'm I'm thinking through is I think it that so the context of all those letters between in the summer of '92 when Washington is trying to get Hamilton and Jefferson to agree that the other person is not evil incarnate, yeah. you know. Uh, and that there's mutual forbearance is necessary. The the underlying of all those letters is that Washington doesn't want to be president for a next term, and he has to make the decision in the fall of of that year. And I mean, he's selling Hamilton on Jefferson. Yeah, exactly. He's trying to get Hamilton to admit this guy's not so bad, and you know, and and yeah, we know you don't like the bank, but you know, differences of opinion need to be allowed to exist, and the bank's at that point it's law. So, so at any rate, think about it. Yeah, I'm gonna think about it. We have to figure yeah. out. How to you got to get into Washington's head a yeah, little I bit. Do. You know, well, that's, 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 I think, that's the, the thing. Ex- that's one of the exciting yeah. parts of this project, because yeah. I spent a lot of time now in Jefferson's head or trying right. to. Yeah. But uh, getting into Washington will be interesting. I'm going to have to figure out how to, how to footnote a podcast, because yeah. you just can't have an idea here. Well, no, I, 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 I look, it's a great opportunity to study these two, I mean, because they, you know, they are these constellations that ro- rotate around each other, and, um, you know, and they have this long relationship. I mean, I wonder what what do you think about their earliest sort of uh, collaboration, sort of when, I mean, because if you look at the, you know, so Washington is basically, you know, Virginia war hero when Jefferson's like 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. And I'm wondering, does this have an effect on him? Does he see Washington in these kind of heroic ways that a young Virginian would? And he, this is the famous colonel who's out yeah. there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's yeah, any evidence I, for it at there, all. There is no evidence yeah. for that, in part because, of course, because of the Shadwell fire, we don't have Jefferson's uh, very earliest writings. Right, right. So we don't know. We don't have, like, a drawing of George yeah. Washington <laughs> with a cape, you know, with a scalp in one hand no, and a but French maybe, head maybe in the we'll other. Find that. <laughs> <laughs> From a 10 year old Jefferson, with, of course, with, you know, columns behind some architectural masterpiece in the background. Uh, no, <laughs> Sam, it could be Samson. Washington is yes, Samson. Exactly. He's you know, later shorn by the harlot. Uh, the li- well, that's the big thing. That's the that's breaking the letter. letter. That's the Matsey letter in 1796. Yeah. So when does Washington learn about that? I guess it's published in in the spring of 97. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the breaking point, but it's at the very end. Yeah, because there's this correspondence where Jefferson sends. I was just reading this somewhere. I don't know where, but Jefferson s- sends a letter to Washington in which he's kind of vaguely talking about. This stuff, and then at the end, he starts talking about I don't know peas or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> sort of like trying to transition yeah. to can we be friends again? I'm yeah. going to tell you about my pea crop that's rotation. Right. And, 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 and even that is interesting because it, yeah. it gets to this. Look, we're both Virginia farmers. Aren't we? Yeah, yeah. You know, he's trying yeah, to yeah. appeal to that issue. So, although you know, on one hand, it appears to be trivial. Well, he knows what Washington also loves to talk right, about. That's right. what he wants so to talk he's, about. And he's saying, "Yeah, let, let's move beyond that." Uh, really, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. And. <laughs> I suppose it's a bit like, I, I hesitate to bring this up, it's a bit like WikiLeaks, having people read things that you've written that you didn't really intend the yeah, world to see. It is a lot, it Anybody, is a lot like it, WikiLeaks. Yeah, it's a lot like that. And, and he's, yeah. he's embarrassed by that, he's mortified, um, and Washington doesn't forgive him, and clearly Martha doesn't forgive him. I mean, this um, happens to him when he's Secretary of State, I think, with his endorsement of the rights of Payne's Rights of Man, where he sends off some note to somebody, and then all of a sudden it's in print. That's right. And it's and, attacking John Adams, right? And the, he ought to know better. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he should. But but you know, it's interesting because I, when Washington sends letters to his European correspondents, like Shasta Lou, uh, Catherine McCauley, Graham, this is when you see like a more open Washington. There's a sense if you're sending a letter to Europe, nobody's ever going to see it again. You know, in the same That's way right. that Washington is very careful about what he writes to anybody. 
you know, who's in a position of inferiority to him or, you know, who's going to... But when he's writing to, like, these women in Europe and, and these French old old friends, you know, he does tend to wax a little more poetic on subjects that you never see him writing about. And the Mazzei letter, if memory serves, is translated yeah. from English into Italian, then Italian into <laughs> French, and then French into back into English. So that's, it's been... Yeah. Well, that, you, that now you're, see, now you are in Jefferson's head, because that's always his, his, uh, his defense, right? It's, yeah. well, it's been a garbled translation that's of a... You know, <laughs> it's not really what I intended. I've been taken way out of context <laughs> here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're like, well, that isn't what I wrote. Uh, because <laughs> it was all about like the forms, yeah. Because remember, he said, like I said that they were interested in the forms of government, not the form of government of right, monarchy. Yeah. So he's like, because they were doing levies and stuff rather than they want to create a monarchy. So it's like, yeah. Is that really a translation error? Very Jeffersonian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, depends on how you define is. Yeah, in this yeah case. exactly. So let's talk about peas instead. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so it, but it's a fascinating, um, fascinating project, which I think will be incredibly successful. Do you have a publisher already? Or Not you, yet. Not yet. Are you going to go trade, or are you going to go... Uh, uh, I don't know. I have to see how it evolves. Well, keep I it mean, tight. This yeah. is, so we're recording this, so right. keep this close to the vest here. <laughs> But That's it's good. one where I think, and this, there aren't that many virtues to growing older, Doug, but one of them <laughs> is you can do what you want in terms of your projects. And That's true. So I'm going to write the thing and then see how it evolves and decide yeah. what I want to do with it, I think. That's really exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm enjoying it. Uh, so uh, you have graduate students who are hard at work? I do. I do. I've got... Um, oof. What are they doing? Where is the field going in Europe? What is that like to be studying early America in England? Or, uh, sorry, Scotland. 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 Dear God. <laughs> I know better than that. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, it's great. I and mean, I've got some students doing, um, unsurprisingly, a lot of Atlantic projects. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a, a PhD student complete last year who wrote about the Belgian Revolution of 1787. Oh, wonderful. Uh, That's great. Which was very interesting. Yeah. I, I've got a very good student who's working right now on early relations between the United States and the Habsburg Empire during the revolutionary period. I love it. And this guy Totally like, understudied. Uh, unstudied, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, totally yeah. unstudied. <laughs> and he's got... Huh. He's a real archive rat and has yeah. very good German and French. And so he's been in Vienna um, finding all kinds of stuff. <laughs> That's just fabulous. Oh, wow. Um, and then I've got... Uh, what, what's the periodization he's taking it? Po I guess he's got to take it into the 19th century. So. Well, he was originally going to write because the the I, if memory serves, and I'm not a Habsburgist, um, <laughs> the uh, official relationship doesn't actually start till 1838 or something. In terms oh, okay. Of, but and he was originally going to cover that entire span, but he's found so much material on the mm. so-called prehistory of it. Yeah. He's really covering the period of the American and French revolutions. Mm. He's got wonderful material. That's great. Just really good stuff. So a lot of them do topics like that. Others um, come and work on Jefferson um, mm -hmm. to, to work with me, I guess. Uh, so I've got... Um, yeah, well, as the preeminent working historian on Thomas <laughs> Jefferson. I mean. Well, that's kind of you to say. I don't know if it's true. Uh, uh, well, and so and Matt Gordon-Reed might disagree yeah, with you. Well, and I might. <laughs> um, so I've got a, a young woman who's just started a PhD who's writing about... Um, Jefferson's thoughts on um, agriculture mm. and horticulture. And, and how is there anything new to say about Jefferson? I get this question all the time about Washington, and of course we, you know, uh, you know, we have this great center here for rethinking the man. He's gotten a lot less work than Jefferson over the last generation. So, so tell me, what, where, where, where are we at with Jefferson's? Well, I'll tell you what our 
mutual friend Peter Onerf told me when I was starting uh, starting working on Jefferson. He said, "Look, there's always something new to say, in part because you're saying it, yeah. and the questions right. change." So my book yeah. on um, Jefferson's foreign policy, Emperor of Liberty, is um, the first one. You think that's it's it's Jefferson and foreign policy? Yeah. These are two traditional topics. Yeah. But Henry Adams. It, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Henry Adams did it a century ago. Uh, Tucker and Hendrickson's wonderful book, Empire of Liberty, is 25 years old now. Yeah. Now I actually take exception with their interpretation, but very Good. interestingly, I get the long knives out. Yeah. <laughs> but interestingly, you know, so I've got a couple of chapters in there on the Barbary Wars, uh, which I think are really or the Barbary War, well, which yeah, I think yeah. is really important. Yeah. Well, that became more important after September 11th, all these Barbary War books. Precisely, yeah. and most of them aren't very good. But, but, but <laughs> is my book a war on terror book? No. Yeah. Is it a book that's influenced by the questions we're asking today? Yes, of yeah. course it is. So yeah. to some extent, the questions change. Absolutely. And that's why we need to revisit these topics. And then for all you people out there listening to this, it's exactly the right answer by Professor Cagliano because history and the study of history is about the present. Uh, it's about what we're trying to understand, how we got to where we are. And the present, guess what, is always changing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm getting lots of questions right now with the election looming about the election of 1800. <laughs> well, exactly. So so what be, what seems to be more relevant and significant changes to the questions we're going to pose to our to our, to our our own past are, are going to be informed. And the subjects we work on, yeah. while they seem well-known and the archives seem well-trodden, the archives are incredibly rich. So, for example, the as, as you well know, you know, the study of slavery has been one of the great achievements of American yeah. historiography over the past several generations. Mm -hmm. Well, Mount Vernon and Monticello are, among other things, the best documented plantations we know of. Absolutely. So those yeah. were questions that perhaps our, our predecessors didn't ask 70 or 80 years ago. That's right. But there are always new questions, and the richness of the archives in these places and related to these individuals. It's not just the study of dead white men yeah. or well, that's and, right. and, about, and about writing heroic narratives. Well, both the Jefferson's papers and Washington's in particular, I mean, the, I mean, Washington is in his papers writing the biographies of hundreds of enslaved people that he didn't, you know, that wasn't what he was intended to be doing, but that's where the evidence exists when most enslaved people's uh, you know, lives disappeared. Uh, and so it's an extraordinary thing right. to have this attention on these founders to such an extent where we've, we've saved every scrap of material related to them because it allows us to get at the social fabric uh, in, in the 18th century in, a, in a, um, an incredible detail in ways that you can't in other countries. That's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. Uh, very exciting stuff, Frank, and uh, I look forward to seeing what your students end up doing. I look forward to seeing this this Washington uh, Jefferson book, so I can write one that disagrees with all of its, <laughs> its points of view. Now, it isn't oftentimes. So I'm in an administrative position now, which gives me very little time to, you know, to write my own uh, scholarship. But there are a number of scholars that it's a great position to be in because I get to meet people who are who are writing things and working on things. And sometimes people come through with book projects that I say. That's a great project. I wish I was doing that project. And you, you sir, have one of them there. Oh, it's really, you, it's really going to be you. a great book to look forward to. So thank you for sitting down with me. Oh, and uh, welcome to Mount Vernon. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that's all we've got. Always great to see an old friend. All right. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. 
please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.